Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. In this episode of Chunk of Change, we chat to Aussie expat Paul Donaldson about his transition from CUB and living on the surf coast of Victoria to New York City, where he is currently the Global Vice President of Strategy at AB InBev. Paul brings his down-to-earth and no-bullshit approach to business at the world's biggest brewer, together with pragmatic advice on how to separate good strategy from bad, the importance of making big choices that have big consequences, and how AB InBev is pivoting through COVID-19 with its values-based approach to crisis management. As a result, this is one of my favourite interviews of the show so far. So I really hope you enjoy this chunk of change with Paul Donaldson from AB InBev. G'day, Paul. Welcome to Chunk of Change. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for having me, mate. Um, Good to be here. Nice to be chatting with you, mate. Nice to be chatting with you. So, look, we've known each other for a bunch of years now. I think going back to about 2004, I had recently returned from New York myself, interestingly enough, and you were, from memory, the brand manager on Solo, I think, in the old Cabri Schweppes days. I was your account director. Yeah, I remember that. I, my first job in uh, in that world was assistant brand manager of Sunkist and uh, uh, energy brand called Black Stallion whenever I was trying to rip off Red Bull and um, both of those brands weren't great, but I eventually graduated to Solo, which I, which I loved. And then you leap forward, what, 15 or 16 years and you're now the global vice president of strategy at one of the biggest consumer goods companies in the world. That's a heck of a change and one heck of a journey, Dono. Can you break down the highlights over the course of that time period for us? Yeah, look, it's been a bit of a journey. It's interesting because there's actually been a lot of things that were beyond my control. But yeah, I started off and I was actually in sales at Tui's was my first major job out of uni when, when they bought all the pubs in Victoria and I remember we were pretty hated because they bought all the pubs in Melbourne and so that was an interesting experience. And then um, eventually I jumped across into, into marketing, took a big pay cut. So it's an interesting bit of career advice to people. I, I halved my salary, lost my company car because I, I thought the, I really was passionate about getting into marketing. So I jumped across, worked my way through Cabbish Webs. So after about seven or eight years there with some great people, I got headhunted to come and run VB, which was, you know, close enough to the biggest brand in Australia. Um, and that was an incredible experience, you know, good and bad, like incredibly hard and massive lessons on working on VB and worked my way through CUB, was marketing director for a while. Then then we got acquired. We got, CUB got bought by SAB Miller, which we thought was the end game. And then a few years later, AB InBev, which was bigger again, acquired the whole of SAB Miller and, you know, picked up CUB as well in October 2016. You know, and then I worked in strategy jobs across Asia Pac, so India, China, and then uh, two and a half years ago got asked to come and lead global strategy out of New York. And how would you describe the differences there, Paul? You started in sales, you transitioned into marketing, and you've been in, in a strategy-focused role for some time now. Step us through the, the major differences between each of those roles and perhaps how they've contributed to where you are today. We, um, we do a lot of recruiting right out of the best business schools in the world. And so we talk to people a lot. And the most important thing I would always recommend is go and work in sales. Anyone in consumer goods, I think sales is an unbelievable grounding. And for a lot of people, you come out of, out of uni or college with a, 
with your marketing degree or whatever and you want to dive straight in, the best thing I ever did was work in sales because it's hard, right? You get yelled at by customers and kicked out of the store and you're fighting competitors and all that stuff. Do you still so, get a car though, like you did back in the day? Yeah, I, I think you still do. I think on, in, in most cases, and when, you, when you're about 25 and coming out of uni, that's a big deal because a car's worth <laughs> about 30 grand a year. So, so there's an upside. Yeah, that's an upside. So that, that, that was, it's a really good commercial, you know, it hardens you up and really shows the real world. Um, and then marketing is, is, is fantastic. I think the one thing I learned about marketing is when you're in it, it can feel like the centre of the world. Like marketing is the only function where there's publications and all these awards and it creates a whole industry around itself, a little bit like advertising. So it's, it's very easy to get lost in that and think that marketing is the centre of everything, like it's super important. But what I've learned when you're coming out of it after 10 years, you know, marketing is a means to an end. It isn't an end in itself. You know, you're, you're trying to do something for the company and hit a result or whatever else. That's one of my biggest lessons. And when you're in it, you know, all that matters is how do we go at Khan or did, you know, I'm in B&T magazine and I saw a lot of people get lost in that. And, and you've got to realise that it's just another function, you know, and supply is just as important and finance and all the rest of that stuff. So that was, that was one of my lessons coming out of marketing. Like I'm, I'm the biggest fan of, of, you know, consumer marketing overall, but having the perspective on it is, is really important. Because traditionally there tends to be a lot of tension between the sales and marketing roles. Why do you think that is? I think it's old school. I think most companies now you're starting to see it minimise or reduce and I think that's important. But yeah, back in the day, I think because, you know, there were egos involved and it was where did the budget sit and, you know, some companies were consumer focused and some sales. And I think in Australia for, for most consumer goods companies, it also coincided with the rise of the retailers you know, for, for whatever, 60, 70% of consumer goods in Australia, if you don't do well with Woolies and Coles, you don't do well. So you had this, through the 90s and early 2000s, this interesting dynamic that it wasn't good enough just to be good at marketing. You know, if, if you weren't ranged in Woolies and had great promotions and everything else, you, you had no hope. So I think you saw that tension for a while and now every, you know, successful company I see has resolved that tension. You know, they, they just have a much better way to to go to market and put all, put all the investment together. And what about the change into the strategy team or the strategy function in general? How did that work for you? Originally at CUB, I believe. Yeah, so yeah, SAB Miller, when they came along and they asked me to be strategy for Australia. So that that's fascinating because you sit effectively above the functions. You don't, you're not in an operational job, but your job is to, you know, I always say that what strategy is, is simply the choices you are making you know, in service of the of the ambition you have as a company or what are the biggest, highest value choices you can make. That, that's what I define strategy as. So that's been really interesting, you know, and, and it took us a few years, but, you know, CUB was was in trouble for a long time, including when I was there. And we did, we, we radically changed the strategy of CUB, like some really big, hard decisions. And then CUB has since been one of the best performing beer businesses in the world. Like it's done incredibly well in Australia, grown market share and CUB now is very close, if not the, you know, the most profitable brewer in the world. And I remember when we weren't and we were going backwards, but the ability to sit back and say, how do we actually win in Australia and then make really tough decisions and break paradigms and all that stuff. And I can give you some examples later, but that was, that was my big lesson on strategy. You need to find the big choices and, and don't be scared to make them. Yeah, look, we'll, we'll get into your role in strategy at AB InBev 
in a little bit, mate, but I'd, I'd really love if you could go a bit deeper on some of those key decisions that you made when you were in that strategy function at CUB to start. Yeah, there's, there's probably two big ones and, and one of them is probably universal for consumer goods. Um, the two relate to when you have a massive iconic brand and it dominates your portfolio, but consumers are starting to change. So that, that was one, I'll talk about it. The other one is the role of the retailers in Australia and how you actually win commercially. So the story on the brands, right? So VB, so VB is an incredible brand. In 1998, VB was roughly 30% of all the beer consumed in Australia. Not CUB, VB, one brand, right? Pretty much in 24 cans and, and 24 stubbies was a, was a third of the market. So spectacularly profitable, like unbelievable, like over a billion dollars revenue in Australia. And for 10 years, CUB wrestled with trying to relaunch VB. Um, you know, we dropped the alcohol, which was one of the worst days of my life. I didn't want to do that, but the board told me I had to. <laughs> Everyone still remembers it. So I, was, I had to be the front man for, for dropping VB's alcohol and I, I hated it. I had to change my phone number because I had threats. So we, we got rid of my um, home phone number. Seriously, I remember I, had, I was on 3AW the morning we did it. And, um, and as I said, I didn't want to do it. I was ardently against it, but it was, you know, it saved... $20 million in tax. So it was a cost based decision, right? It was cost, yeah. You Not alcohol a brand based one. The tax is related to alcohol strings. So you drop VB by, you know, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, and it was $20 million more profitable. So, but so the, the lesson in that was we kept trying to relaunch it, build a company around it. There was ego in it, you know, so six or seven times, massive campaigns, like hundreds of millions of dollars, and it just never turned around. And and what we learned, you know, we, it took us a long time was you have to go where the consumers are going in terms of the trends. If you keep hanging on to the past, eventually it hurts you and it hurts CUB for a decade. And it wasn't, you know, you see the same with Coca-Cola, you saw the same with Cadbury Chocolate. It almost doesn't matter what category. Companies that kept hanging on and hanging on and, and didn't go where the consumers were going was a disaster. So the, the first big choice we made was we're going to aggressively rebalance the portfolio, right? And so that meant literally taking money out of VB and Carlton Draft and saying, look, they have a role, they're really important, but we have to go where consumers go. And that was incredibly liberating because out of that, literally within a year or two, came the launch of Great Northern, right? Because we, we suddenly had the resources, we knew where consumers are going, they wanted something lighter, lower alcohol, and be a bit more unisex and Great Northern came out and it's very close to now being the biggest beer in Australia from a standing start only a few years ago. So it's an incredible lesson in don't keep getting hung up on the past, you know, because it, it can be so damaging long-term. That's, that's probably the biggest thing. If I ever go back into marketing, that's the one lesson that, I, that I'll bring with me is, is just don't keep trying to turn around things that, that aren't on trend. Great advice, mate. So transitioning over to AB InBev and the, your transition over to the States in particular in terms of the global VP of strategy role, just the scale of the largest beer company in the world is absolutely extraordinary. So let me just run these numbers past listeners. Over $50 billion US a year in revenue that translates to about $20 billion a year in EBITDA. You brew about 56 billion litres of beer a year. You have 80,000 staff, you're in over 50 countries, over 500 brands sold, 20,000 farmers work for you around the world. 
That must have been a heck of a transition in terms of scale. No matter how big the beer market here is in Australia, transitioning over to the States must have been a heck of a change. Yeah, no, you're right. One of my favourite things, and I talk to this with my kids and, and people I mentor, one of the most important things in work and I think in life is perspective and, and that's what you get coming here because, you know, CUB was the world to me and everyone else. That's what we knew and Australia was fascinating. When you come over here, Australia is a tiny market. Right? It's a small market in beer and most consumer goods sectors. Um, it's interesting because it's profitable, but but that's about that's about it. So yeah, the scale is is amazing, and you know it's um, what it does. It just gives you opportunities. Like it just opens doors. You have access to to people and thinking that that we don't you know normally get. So that that has been incredible. So yeah, it's a massive company. It's sort of one of the sort of ten to fifteen largest companies in the world. It's the largest consumer goods company in the world by profit. You know, it's well, the, the number you said, it's equates to $28 billion Australia a year profit. Um, but we are incredibly local. So that's, that's the big difference to us to say a company like Apple. We have operations in local markets all over the world, like more than 50 countries. So we, we are probably the world's largest local company. And we're almost the sum of the breweries and the communities and it all, it all adds up to this enormous company. But we, in many markets, um, we're the largest employer. You know, we're, one of, we're close to the largest manufacturer and often we're the largest taxpayer. So it's a very different model to someone like, you know, say Apple, who has all this incredible IP in the centre, gets it manufactured in a different location and then sells through the stores. Ours is the opposite. You know, we grow crops, we harvest them um, with farmers, we then brew locally, sell locally, um, and then, you know, over time, we've been able to bring scale to that. Because you were, I mean, you were one of the most accomplished executives in your category by the time you left. What were some of the challenges in adjusting both professionally and personally? Because even personally, I mean, I always remembered you as being a, a guy who loves his surf, loves his footy, great family man um, who transitioned from, you know, his place down in Janjuk where you spent so much time over to the bright lights of New York City. How did you manage that? Yeah, it was crazy. Well, Jan Jack's my favourite place in the world. You know, work said to me, you know, we want you to stay for good and you can live anywhere you want in the world. And I said, oh, I only want to live in Jan Jack. So I, I love the place. So I miss the surf. The surf's no good over here. We get a little bit at a place called Montauk, which I love. But but no, it's it's different. I think the, you know, I like New York as a city and I'm, I'm a bit of a believer in the US. There's a lot of haters. So, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of what the US is and what it's going through, but I'm certainly not a, not a hater. But... Yeah, it was, it was tough. Like the family found it hard. New York is fast, it's aggressive, it's competitive. Like all those things are, are very true. You know, it's, it's tangible. You sort of see it and like people hassle you in the supermarket and they have a go at you and they'll yell at you when you're getting in a cab. So it's, it's a different culture. But the reason I can still, you know, really like the place is it's, it's authentic. It's just genuine. New York holds itself out as the quintessential city and it is, you know, just like... Janjak is the quintessential little country surf town. So that's why I can deal with both and still love it. But yeah, it's, it's been hard. The, the, the way to describe New York, as everyone asks, and is it's just extreme relative to Australia. On almost every dimension you can think of, social and cultural, New York has the extremes. The best example of that is, is inequality. Like the inequality over here is extraordinary. Like I've never experienced anything like it. But it's a fascinating place overall. It's just, it just really pushes the boundaries for an Australian of, you know, of what we're used to. So has it changed you as a person, do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think um, you told me once that you've got to get out of New York before you become too hard and out of California before you come too soft. It's a little bit like that. You've got to be careful because you just go at an incredible pace. But I think the biggest thing it's done is open my mind to the the inequality topic, you know, and now it's, you know, it's coming out as Black Lives Matter. But before that, I found it really confronting. And to, to make it real for people in New York City, roughly a quarter of the population live at or below the poverty line. And the poverty line here is described as earning about $24,000 a year for a family of four, right? So roughly a quarter of people live like that. And then in the same city, you have more than 100 billionaires, I don't think that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, right? So it's very confronting. You know, I've done a lot of work in India and India has incredible poverty and and that's brutal to watch, but they don't have the high end to the same degree. So it's bizarre that on Manhattan Island, from Harlem through to the Upper East, which is only like 50 blocks, you have this stunning inequality. The change must have been significant enough when you went from Janjak to New York, but then... You know, a short while later, you can throw COVID into the mix and that's changed things up even more. Yeah, well, COVID was, so we're all going along well and the you know, company's doing well and I'm sure everyone that's listening can can uh, appreciate this, they're all the same. But yeah, so COVID just came out of nowhere. And, um, you know, it's fascinating because I did genetics and biology at, at uni for a while. So I've been really interested in it, you know, for a, you know, since the start in terms of the biology and, you know, it started with bats in caves and that's that's true. I've got National Geographic articles that go back that talk about this going back four and five years that I've since reread. But yeah, it came out of nowhere. It hit us first in China. That's the great benefit of being a global company. We saw it in detail in China at the end of January and February. Right? So we saw this thing. We had the China team reporting back every day, what's happening, what's the infection rate, you know, what does it do to the business? What does it do to our people? So that was very, very insightful. You know, you could see it, you know, from, from Wuhan and then beyond. We have people in all those, we have breweries in Wuhan. Right, so we learned in real time what was happening. But then, yeah, as, as it got worse and more dramatic and the spread, then we started a crisis team. I was part of that. We meet every day with people all around the world and we try and identify and resolve the biggest issues. And the issues are unbelievable. Like you could never anticipate them. They're unprecedented. But we got through it. You know, we, we went to a different business rhythm with ourselves as a group and then with the executive team, the CEO and the board. And so far we've been managing it. Time will tell um, in terms of how it's all gone, but we're certainly doing the best we can and it's been an incredible experience. So tell us some more about those various initiatives that AB InBev took to address some of those challenges as a result of COVID. The One Team initiative got a lot of press at the time. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of things we did. Like the Obviously, you've got to try and protect the people first. So that was good. Like the first thing we said is protect the people, right? So we went straight away to the, the highest possible level of safety and protocols that we could. We started doing a lot of work with communities. So we turned a lot of the breweries over rapidly. I remember the idea came up um, and then it was done in terms of making hand sanitizer out of the breweries. So I think we were close enough to the first in the world to do that. We started um, producing water for local communities because you can imagine, right, so we work in countries where it's very difficult in terms of quality of life. So, you know, you know, parts of Latin America, we have breweries in Africa and India. So we did a whole lot of stuff on everything from sanitizers to provision of water for local communities and the safety work and education. So you had a whole range of things like that to work with the communities because in our case, you can never divorce yourself from that. 
because the people that, that live in an area are the people that, that run our breweries, you know, so it's all one and the same thing. You can't divorce them. So it, it becomes the most important factor. So that's sort of how we started. You, know, you sort of start with that, then you work through, you know, so what are the commercial issues? How do you keep the breweries open? Uh, and, then, and then you work from there. But having, you know, a sort of values-based approach of what's most important, it certainly helps give it all structure. And interestingly, you're actually in the process of changing over a lot of the, the stadiums that you sponsor for things like blood drives off the back of some of the challenges that are presented by COVID as well. Yeah, that's right. The, one of the things we, we have done in the US team have, have led a lot of this. They've worked with the big sporting organisations and, and the big stadiums. You know, we have deals with the Yankee Stadium and others to say, look, let's forget about the sport for now, but how do we both invest to, to make them a place where people can come and donate or pick up things that, that relate to helping with COVID. So that's been really big and we you'll be able to see them online. There's a couple of big commercials and TV spots we put on about it that are pretty powerful. So yeah, it's been a really interesting thing to be part of. One of the amazing things I always find about the Budweiser brand and Bud Light for that matter in the US in particular is how ingrained in American culture it is. So I took a step back and did a little bit of research onto the organisational purpose and some of the language that's associated with that, because I think it's actually relevant to some of this conversation. Your mission statement, which is about bringing people together for a better world, that's a little bit ironic in a time of social distancing, I, <laughs> I get as well. But then when you talk about the brand's impact, and AB InBev talks about that you're proud of your global brands and that they're inspiring and empowering consumers to create a better world, Look, at the risk of sounding controversial, is that a bit of virtue hustling? Yeah, and I, I understand the point. I think, and I think we have to be careful there, and I've done a lot of work with the team on this one. I think what, what our view is, is that at its best, beer brings people together in really quality moments and great conversations. So at its best, it can be a really positive thing. And, you know, that's what I believe. That's why, I, you know, I work here. And But I think it's important that we acknowledge, you know, Harmful consumption is there. We hate it as well. We do everything we can to stop it. But I think where it comes from, I think, is a pure enough place to say, you know, bringing people together in real moments over real conversations, and, and you know, and it's mixed gender for us. But if in the Australian context historically, it's particularly males, like males coming together over a beer, you know, drunk responsibly and all that sort of thing. I think is a really important thing as part of communities and societies, you know, as long as it's done responsibly. So that's where the intent is for that and where it comes from. So do you think it's possible then to be too virtuous with brand purpose and brand propositions at times? Uh, I think it depends if you believe it and it's legit. You know, the, the one you're talking about is is the company purpose. So we say, well, the company's purpose is to bring people together you know, that's, um, that's what it is. And then the brands have different purposes, you know, and um, often it's not the centre of what they are. But for example, Corona has a big mission to get rid of plastic off beaches. You know, and, and it does it. Like it does programs that actually do it. Stella provides clean drinking water. You know, we, we use Matt Damon to be the face of that. So I think if it's legitimate and you're actually doing something real. And I had a, a really interesting experience with that in Australia. You know, it was the one of the things that I'm probably the most proud of that I've ever done was we did the VB Raise a Glass campaign years ago, which was to raise money for veterans in Australia, right? And and that was uh, controversial at the time, especially for the first year. I remember doing a whole lot of radio interviews about that and people thought it was, you know, a faceless company and associating with the Anzacs and everything else. And 
it actually came from me individually. Like I, I, I am so passionate about that cause, you know, about about the importance of, of Australian soldiers and looking after them. You know, and I believed in it so much and, and pushed it. So I met everyone. I went and met literally hundreds of veterans, RSL branches in every state. I met with Legacy in every state, Department of Veterans Affairs. You know, and in the end, I decided we are going to go here. You know, we believe in this so much. We donated $7 million. You know, Legacy told me it was the single largest donation to veterans welfare they'd ever received. So there's a point where I think you have to say, you know, that, that sort of, that, that old saying, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. You know, we believed in it and, you know, hell or high water, we were going to do it because, I, you know, it came from a really legitimate place and, you know, you've got to stand for something at some point and that's probably how I would think about topics like this. I think that's a really reasonable answer. I mean, let's be honest, if your purpose was just to sell more beer, it, it's probably not going to be all that motivating to that many people, right? Yeah, and it's our, our, the CMO of the company has a really interesting way of framing it in, in the more recent context. You know, there's there's plenty of literature out there that says the great dilemma of our time, you know, beyond COVID is social isolation, you know, the, the role of social media and social isolation. So we talk about hopefully beers at its best. It can be the, the thing that brings people together face-to-face in real moments and breaks down this whole thing of, of people, you know, relationships on purely on social media and that, that this whole notion of, you know, a thousand friends who you've never really met versus two or three that you can really talk to. You know, I think that's really interesting in that, that modern context because I see it and I have kids like probably a lot of people who are listening and the role of social media in their lives is really difficult, you know, and even the generation beyond them, the 20, 25-year-olds, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic and it's important, you know, you get it right as, as parents and, and as a society. So look, I could talk brand and I could talk brand purpose forever and a day, but I do want to come back and just explore your current role in terms of your global VP of strategy for AB InBev. I've read a bit about AB InBev's One Clear Strategy initiative, which kind of transcends the company. How do you develop One Clear Strategy for a company the size of AB InBev when you've got, what is it, over 500 brands in over 50 countries? Yeah, that's a good question. And the, the secret I've never told anyone here was, well, the first time we did it was at CUB. So CUB didn't have a strategy. It was a mess, right? You know, and lots of people will talk about when they were, no one seems to, when you go back in time, be accountable for for the the, the negative part of CUB when it was declining. But, you know, like I said, we worked on it for probably two years um, and then we decided, you know, we need to distill this down. And the idea was if you can't communicate your strategy on one page, in probably no more than about four or five big choices, then it's not powerful enough. You're not making enough choices. You know, I've seen strategy, doc, you know, hold documents of 50 pages. It, it just doesn't work because in a company like ours or, or large companies, everyone needs to align to it. You need to be able to communicate it. So it's it's literally, in some ways, it's a marketing exercise. You do the, do the thinking and then it's about how do you communicate and engage people because you want a behaviour change. You want people to buy in and or debate it or do something with it. So, so that was the the idea is you need to find the really clear decisions that matter and then be able to, to put it onto one page. And when I came in here in the New York office, I spent, you know, the first six months, I just asked people, so what's the strategy? And I literally would get different answers all over the place. And nothing was malicious or nothing was necessarily wrong, but there just wasn't an answer to that question that was clear enough. So 
I worked on it with the, you know, the executive team, the CEO, we went to the board with it, and now we literally have it posted up on the wall and everyone knows it. Like people have it laminated, it's, it's in all our, all, our, all our content and everyone knows our choices. You know, for example, one of them for us is, you know, you can make all sorts of choices in beer. We, one of them is premiumise at scale. We want to lead the premiumization of the beer market globally. But that's a choice. It has consequences, right? It means we're going to invest more in global brands and maybe reallocate resources from core brands occasionally. But that's an example of, of, a, of a big, clear strategic choice. You know, a, a newer one for us is, you know, we, we want to build a material adjacencies business. So get outside of beer and, and start to, you know, go where consumers go, linking to that point from earlier. If consumers are moving into different segments, then we need to be there as well. You can't just sit there and protect, you know, your beer consumption. If they're moving um, into different types of beverages, then eventually you decide, well, we have to go. We need a new model here. And that's another choice. So a test of it for people who are working on strategy, the choice should feel uncomfortable at some point and it should have very real consequences. I love it. Any other, any other signs that it's a bad strategy? Because I think... By its very definition, a lot of people out there in the workplace actually don't even understand what strategy is, let alone be able to differentiate between what's good and what's bad. Yeah, the, the main one should be that if a good strategy should be able to be used day to day in the company, right? So I'll give you a real example. We're, not, we're at CUB, right? So um, we made the choice to rebalance the portfolio, like I said. Right? So I said, right, so core brands have a role, so VB, Carlton Draft, Crown Lager, you name it, but we need to start to really push into the areas that are, that are growing, right? So whether it was craft or whether it was things like Great Northern. And then so you have gate meetings, you know, those ones, like stage gate and yeah. launch. And after a while, once people were clear, they would self-filter on what they would bring to the gate meeting. So people would say, right, okay, I'm not going to bring another line extension of VB because that's not its role anymore. Its role is to be the quintessential brand for Australian males, you know, work hard, all those great things about VB, but we're not going to keep doing line extensions. And, you know, I was guilty of doing some of the line extensions before that. So people knew that, okay, based on that choice of rebalancing the portfolio, we need to have action. So give you an example. That led to the M&A strategy we had to acquire craft brewers, Four Pines and Pirate Life and now Bolter. Right, so we said, right, rebalance the portfolio, we need to be stronger in craft, bang, let's go and build partnerships with these guys who are great operators and that, that's exactly a consequence of that strategy. CUB didn't do that before, right? so that's a consequence. The other one was Great Northern. We said, right, consumers, you know, there's growing demand for mid-strength beer um, in more social, easygoing, mixed-gender occasions, so out of that strategy came the choice to, to go after Great Northern. Great Northern's actually an interesting story. You, you'll hear lots of um, you know, success has many fathers. You know, you know that one? Yeah, indeed. Great Northern was born by the Queensland sales team, right? It wasn't born by CUB marketing, no matter what anyone tells you. But it was, it was a fascinating exercise. We were going to launch something else, which was going to be a dog. I, don't, I, can't remember. It was, I think it was pure blonde white from memory. Another good reason to start in sales, don't I? Yeah, that's right. The Queensland sales guy ran me up and said, man, I don't want to do that. We, we're getting killed in Queensland. We need to do something different. You know, can we work with the, your marketing team and the innovation team to come up with something specifically for Queensland to go after Forex? That was how it happened. And then we tried it in Queensland. We kept getting the replicable model better. It's one thing we talk about a lot. It's not just about a brand. You need to have a replicable business model. 
and we tested and learnt and tested and learned in Queensland and then eventually we took Great Northern National. They're examples of very real actions and choices that come from a strategy. And if your strategy doesn't do that, then it's not valuable. That's an interesting example, actually, because the choices and the actions that you take as part of your planning process are important. But then I think about just the number of countries that a business like AB InBev is in. Talk to us about the insight process that leads to those choices in the first place. Like there's so many variables and there's so many sources of insight. You've just mentioned the sales team in Queensland in the case of CUB. Yep. How do you how do you manage that in a consistent and a replicable way? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. And if, if people want to look, you can go onto the ABM website in the investor relations section and you'll actually see this content I'm about to talk about. So years ago, we worked on how do you understand how people change their alcohol consumption from very early maturity, low GDP markets. So let's talk about India and parts of Africa through to the much more mature markets. So um, you know, Western Europe and the US and Australia. And we, and we did years of work on it and we came up with a market maturity model that is highly predictive of how people will change their um, patterns of consumption, right? So it's amazing to see in action. And again, jump on the website and you can see it, but in early maturity markets, alcohol and beer is consumed mostly by males in small on-premise bars, Right? And don't think on-premise like we know it in Australia and cool bars. You're talking, you know, these places are in India and parts of Africa. Often it's, it's dirt floors, it's a male-only occasion. You know, that, that, that's what happens. But then as GDP grows and, and as societies change over time, you get into what we call maturity two markets, which is what you see in places like Brazil and Mexico, and it changes. You know, alcohol consumption becomes much more unisex. It's still anchored in entree, but often it's social, it's a bit more party occasion, it starts to be at home consumption a little bit. And then in maturity three, like Australia and the US, you end up with different again, so so wealth increases and you end up with at home. So the dominant alcohol occasions are at home um, because people have good houses, they like to entertain everything else. The biggest channel is, is retail channels, so like Dan Murphy's and all the rest of it. Um, and you have very different behaviour. And, and we go back sort of 80 years with the data and countries just follow this curve, you know. So, so we know that in, in Colombia, where we're really strong business, that it was all about core lager 10 years ago. But because we know how the country's developing, we go in and we launch premium. We disrupt ourselves because we know it's coming. So that's the, the value of, of when you have a, you know, a really clear view across the world. You can take learnings from one market and apply it to the other. And that's a really good insight in the case of looking to drive growth. But what about the insights and ways of working as it relates to driving profit? How's that different? Profit's, profit's an interesting one. So ABI has a probably a different approach to some companies. You know, it's, we're the most profitable brewer in the world by a long way. And we actually, the way we go about that is um, we're tied on costs. But the idea is cost to reinvest back in. So it's not cost for its own sake, it's to reinvest for growth. But we have a, a couple of really big processes that we use that are public and we, we call them the, the champions process. So we have a, a cost champions process. And the simple way of thinking about that is it's global sharing of best practice that then gets adopted around the world. ABI is unbelievably good at picking up something that works and copying it from internal or from external companies. I'll talk about external later, but 
you know, internally. So we literally say to people, right, on water usage in a brewery, who's the best in the world at that? Who's the most efficient? What do they do? Right? One of them actually, when, when they acquired CUB, was the brewery we have in Queensland in Yatla, was one of the best in the world for water use. So we codify the learnings, we show everyone in the world, they sign up to it and they do it. And we have that for everything from how do you make cans, how do you unload them off pallets, you know, how do you apply labels, everything you can imagine in minute detail, we do that time and time and time again. And it results in, you know, really, really good efficiency. That, that's, that's the way we think about that. AB InBev have been the number one alcohol company in the world for innovation, according to Forbes magazine last year. What do you actually put that down to? What are some of the gold class examples of AB InBev's innovation capabilities? It's interesting because people probably expect me to say, oh, we did this brand or that and it was a success like Great Northern. But I think the biggest thing is you need to make choices before this that enable the company to innovate, right? So I hate cliches, so I'll explain what I mean by that. The idea of rebalancing your portfolio and moving resources from big core brands into things that are growing is one of the most critical things we did. Right? Like I said, that was the thing that um, that made Great Northern happen and made CUB win a whole lot of innovation awards. But what people didn't see was was all that five years of debate and discussion to enable that. So that's a really big one, like setting the, setting the playing field to allow the team to innovate. Otherwise, you just end up throwing darts at a wall. The other thing we do is we say the core business, because it's so efficient and so good at what it does, it needs to do its thing. But that business model breaks when you get into small innovation. And so we set up an entirely different arm, which is which is ZX Ventures, to go and do this stuff, to do seed and launch. That's their function. Seed and launch in all the funky new growing segments. And then they build replicable models or they fail. You know, they set up, they, it's perfectly okay to fail. But the idea is they build a replicable model and then it plugs into the core business. So you almost provide a, like an ecosystem for the innovation to work as opposed to, you know, the answer is not that, you know, we have full day brainstorming sessions on what people will want to end up on whiteboards. That, that's not the answer. That's how we used to do it 15 years ago. That's not the answer. What's different with ZX Ventures? I mean, I was chatting to Karen Lawson who ran a corporate partnerships startup organisation called Slingshot, um, one of the better established corporate VC players in the marketplace over here. They specialise in bringing corporates together with startups to accelerate those startups' growth in the marketplace. Why did you choose to spin off or start ZX Ventures as its own separate entity? Why not try and do it within AB InBev? I wasn't here in New York when it started. I, th I think because the previous model just doesn't work anymore. You know, when you go into particularly the mature markets where the consumer needs are fragmenting, if you try and run that through a massive big beer business and address all those needs, it just doesn't work. You, you just, because you can't distract the salespeople away from when, you know, they've got to go and sell truckloads, literally truckloads of VB into, into Dan Murphy's and Coles. And then you can't ask them to go and try and do a trial phase of alcoholic kombucha in 10 bars. It just doesn't work. And that actually was the, the downfall of CUB when it bought the wine company, that, that exact same thing, the inability to, to do so much with, with the same people. So ZX Ventures is, is effectively run like a venture capital unit. You know, they, they are separate. The, the, the key to it, it's, it's separate. It has its own P&L. It has dedicated people so that they're not part-time in ZX and part-time in the core business. They are dedicated 
and they run with entirely different metrics. You know, the, the core business we're measured on volume and net revenue growth and profit, they're measured on trial and adoption rate and lifetime customer value, all that sort of stuff. So entirely different metrics, different type of people in a dedicated role, you know, with, with different incentives and the whole lot. So that's that's the, the trick to it. It's, it's a different business model. And the, as I said, they're tasked with coming up with leading edge ideas that become replicable business models. And is it profitable? Uh, sometimes. So we don't look at it so much. I, I think, you know, it, it depends how you look on it, look at it, because you, you know, whether you look at short-term profit or ROI, like we're often with these, with the ventures, we're trying to create major new business units. You know, one of them we've been working on is we've developed a way to use all of our spent grain, the waste product. So you're talking millions of tonnes of finished grain to actually produce um, really pure protein that can make food products. I thought you were going to say Vegemite there for a second. Yeah, no, no. Well, that's well, that's this 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 might be a higher value use than Vegemite. Um, <laughs> uh, but but again, the idea we're not measuring them on the P and L next month. We're measuring them. Can that become a massive scale business model? You know, and 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 off they go. So so it has different metrics. You know, of course, profitability matters, but that's not their primary purpose. That that's the purpose of the core business. All right. So that's some fantastic insight. Thank you, Paul, in terms of the, the brand work you do, the strategy work you do, the innovation work you do and the technology behind it all as well. I'd love to shift gears and talk for a second about sponsorship. I mean, anyone who's spent any matter of time in the States sees the Budweiser and Bud Light and for that matter, Michelob logos all over the country, in particular in sporting arenas. You've got to spend hundreds of millions of dollars worth of sponsorship on events each year. How do you see this changing, if at all, as a result of COVID, given the fact that so many sporting codes have actually shut down recently? It's a good one. Let me give you an example of sponsorship more broadly and link back to a previous point, then we'll talk about COVID. So sponsorship is fascinating. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big big fan of it. I love it. I'm a, you know, I'm a bit of a sport fan as well. But I'll give you an example of, of this point around strategy having consequences. So... You only going back only probably six or seven years. CUB used to sponsor everything. There used to be a saying that if it if it moves our logos on it, and if it doesn't, we'll paint it. You know, so CUB. But you go back in time, it literally sponsored everything you can imagine. Um, and then remember, I told you about we made the choice that we're going to rebalance the portfolio, right? And there's consequences because um, the big brands have their role, but we need to free up resources to go where the growth is. So. Before too long, you get into discussion around, right, can the brand sustain those sponsorships? So you're talking big dollars here. In Australia, you're talking for a lot of the big properties, 10, 15, 20 million dollars for the sponsorship rights to some of the, you know, the big sports you're talking, you know, whether it's cricket or rugby or AFL. And so we did the work on it and the decision was made at the time, you know, we, we had to step out of cricket. You know, which was a massive decision. You know, the, the idea of the, the, you know, people will remember the VB logo was on the cricket team for years, but, you know, the, the consequences of the strategy were that, you know, we had to make decisions and, and that, was, that was one, right? So, and that was a decision. It's not because anyone doesn't love cricket or doesn't believe in it. It's just for the good of the company, you know, and, and to get where consumers are going and where the growth is, you have to make hard calls. And I remember being in the room, we debated it for hours and hours and hours. And you had people that were passionately for or against. In the end, you say, well, it's going to free up X million dollars a year. We think we can reach those same people another way. 
and again, to, to make it real for people, that was part of the, the funding, if you like, that really helped drive Great Northern. So I think to start answering your question, sponsorship as opposed to doing everything because it felt good and you could go there and take clients to the event, sponsorship now has to have a very real purpose, right? It has to have a specific role in the marketing mix. And if it doesn't, if it's just about because people like going there on the weekends and taking customers and having a few beers, then, then you've got to question it and question all of it. And then so much and, so, so much so because AB InBev got some quite a bit of press last year about an incentives-based sponsorship model that was announced, where kind of every AB InBev sponsor deal going forward, whether it's a team or whether it's a league, there'll be kind of a base compensation amount, and then there'll be metrics that trigger larger investments by AB InBev over and above those figures. Tell us a yeah. little bit about that. Yeah, well, you, you think about it. It's it, Previously, it was a world where, you know, and I'm going back a while, the, you just ga- gave the, the sport a whole lot of cash and walked away and saw them in the corporate box and that was it. You know, and your logo was on the jumper or the ground and it just doesn't work. You think about how even as employees you're incentivized. It doesn't work like that. My bonus isn't just for rocking up. You know, I've got to achieve things and all the rest of it and, you know, it's the same when we work with ad agencies. There's metrics in there. So it was it's probably sponsorship was a bit late to the party. But yeah, it's a simple enough principle. We're saying, we talk to them and say, this is why we partner with you. This is the reason we do it. And we be specific. We say property X, you know, we want to be with you because we want to really engage 18 to 24 year olds. We want to really use use your players to do that because they have such incredible reach with them and credibility. And we want you to help us do it, right? And as part of that, here's some metrics that we that we want to agree on and we and we and we negotiate with them. And if we can do that, there's kickers in the deal. That's the idea. And, and it all comes back to this idea that the sponsorship is, it has to have a, have a purpose and a meaning. Otherwise, it, again, it's, it's just wallpaper. And, and we've learned that that doesn't work. And presumably not a lot of those kickers are going to be paid out this year as a result of COVID. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you've, got to be, you've got to be fair, but COVID's, COVID's been tough. You know, I was reading the other day that Coke dropped a big part of their Major League Baseball sponsorship over here. For those who don't know, Baseball culturally is a bit like cricket. It dominates the summer. It's the only major sport that's on. People go there for six hours like cricket, you know, So, and they walked away. So, yeah, I, I think us, like everyone, is just looking at the sponsorship and just, I guess, it's the same approach that it's got to have a purpose, but now the bar goes up a bit because of COVID. You know, there's not as though there's, there's free money anywhere. You know, we have obligations to shareholders and all the rest of it, so everyone's looking at it. I don't think we've made any major decisions yet, but it's the same principle, you know, we'll probably do many more specific things with a purpose. So going back to some of your work in strategy, strategy is obviously at times quite an ethereal part of any business. A lot of the time also with strategists within organisations is they spend lots and lots of money on other strategists to bring those (laughs) other strategists in and tell them what to do. Yeah. How does it work at AB InBev? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, and I saw that at CUB. We, we brought in everyone, that all the big ones and everyone you know, and it failed time and time again. Right? It literally over the space of 10 years, and I'm probably talking from the, before my time, even from the mid-90s for probably 15 years, you know, the, the company was was losing share and, it, and, and almost nothing worked and, and they'd engaged everyone. We, we have an approach where, in general, because we, we try and run a, a very lean company, we don't engage consultants much, but we will use them on very specific briefs. 
right? We, when, we, when we do a major integration, when we buy someone, we will, we will use them. But, you know, it's, it's got to be a very specific brief that we can't solve internally. And, you know, my, my strategy team didn't exist before I came here and we, we set it up. And my view is <clears throat> if we're using consultants for a head office project, then something's wrong in my team. But what's the capability that I don't have? So we do a lot of it. Give us an example of what you couldn't solve internally in, a, in an organisation the size of AB InBev. There might be, for example, a project where we want to enter a new market, one that we've never really had experience in, and we want to understand that, that market and the dynamics of it more. Right, so that, that, that's an example. You know, it might be a, one of the smaller African countries or one of the countries in Southeast Asia where we don't operate and we just feel we don't know enough about it and we don't have, you know, by, via desk research or what we know as a company, we don't have anyone who's operated there. So we need someone who has people on the ground who can actually tell us what, what really happens. That, that's an example, like a, a very specific brief to say, whatever, we, we want to go and operate in the Philippines, we need to know more about that market or wh- whatever country it may be. So, so that's kind of corporate and business strategy. What about advertising and communication strategy? Because... Anheuser-Busch in particular in the States is probably, together with Michelob more recently as well, is probably some of the more highly awarded brands in the world from an advertising perspective. What role do your advertising agency's partners play in delivering value to the AB InBev business? I'm not in marketing directly, but I, but I work with the, the guys obviously, but we have an internal agency now called Draftline. So a lot of our work now is done internally. So again, it's not the market is making up. We've hired experts and creatives and a lot of it is is more digital one-to-one based. Um, we do a lot of really fast turnaround campaigns. So we do a lot of that work that used to sit in agencies in-house. But for the really big stuff, we absolutely believe and work with the agencies. We work with some great ones. The big things like major global campaigns on the, you know, whether it's Corona, Stella, Budweiser, Michelob Ultra, they're absolutely developed with the agencies. You know, I've always valued the agencies. You know, the, the best work I ever did creatively in Australia was great partnerships with agencies. And more than that, I remember Russell Howcroft told me once, he said, don't look at the name of the agency, look at the people you're actually going to work with. So I remember that was one of the lessons I learned. But, Sounds like a Russellism. Yeah, that's right. But but great people. And so so absolutely, they have a crucially important role, but it, it is increasingly on the the really big, you know, more complex briefs that, that are you know, on on major brands with consequences. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you've got, you know, extraordinary depth of technology capability. You've got a phenomenal, you know, strategy function, sales function. Yet the one thing that you probably spend as much, if not more money on than, than anything in terms of the consulting services is advertising. Why do you think you haven't managed to crack that internally? Well, I think shooting from the hip, I think, it, yeah, you're probably right. It probably is a, a larger spend than our, our overall management consulting. Like we, we tend to, in a given year, it's not that much, the consulting spend. I don't think we're setting out to crack it. But, I, you know, if you ask my personal view, I do believe in the power of the creativity. You know, so, and I think you need specialist capability to do that. As much as marketers all like to think they're creative, in general, you know, it, it's a skill. You know, it, it's it's exactly it's a capability and, a, and an ability. It's rare. It's incredibly valuable, and the the best of it tends to sit within the agencies because people that are good at this and love it, they get challenged more by in the agency environment because they get to work on different clients, and you know more about this than I do. But 
I, I still think, you know, that the very best minds in, in this that can create the campaigns that, that really cut through, they still sit in the agencies. You know, that, that would be, the, I think that's the, you know, still the paradigm. And what about the corporate culture at AB InBev in terms of the willingness to take creative risks and take on big, bold, creative ideas? Is that, is that noticeable? Is that celebrated? Because it's certainly reflected in a lot of the work that you do. Yeah, I, I think it's. Um, I think it's. It's almost there's. There's no restrictions. You know, it's obviously we, we play within a very clear set of rules because it's alcohol. So there's a whole lot of rules that come with that. But no, I think the guys are. You know, most of the briefs that, that I see. You know, it's. It's just come back with with the best possible idea, and then we'll, they will talk through it from there. You know, that they're, they're always the ones. You know, the the ones that that shock you a bit, and you know. But but usually, you know, marketers that that know what they're doing, usually you can see it straight away, you know, when the the ideas come back. I remember the day, the best work I've ever done personally was that Schweppes Burst campaign, um, which which was done in Australia locally. And I remember in in the pitch when the guys came back, they played the video and within three seconds, that was it. I just said, that's it. Like they just, they played a, a slow, a super slow mild balloons bursting and I just, I literally, it would have been three seconds. I said, that's it, we're done. You know, I didn't even read the script, you know, and so so I think, Steve, yeah, the, the approach to that is I think you have to let agencies off the leash to get the right idea and, and then you work through it after that. What role does intuition play in assessment of creative product, Dono? When I hear you say that, making your mind up in the first three seconds, I don't think that's necessarily reflective of a lot of the way that most clients would provide feedback. Well, here's an example. People will probably have a lot of empathy for this. So I loved it from the moment I saw it and then I got asked to put it through the dreaded link test <laughs> and it almost got killed. I remember it. It sucked in link testing because we had to do an animatic of slow motions balloons popping, right? So you imagine how dull that is. Like it's a flat cartoon of it, you know, so the, the people that are being researched get told a balloon pops in slow motion on the ground. So I think... It's an eternal wrestle. I understand both sides because people don't want to waste money and all the rest of it, but I've rarely seen the great work that, that hasn't been more intuition and belief-based than link-tested till it's refined to death. Okay, so you've been in New York for, what, a couple of years now? Yeah, two and a half. Your family's actually recently gone back to Australia yep. and you're scheduled to join them at the back end of this year. What are you going to miss about New York? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I, I think um, so. I think you miss the, the energy, you know, the, the the scale of it. You know, it's it's there's just moments over here that that are awesome. Like you know, after work, some nights, you know, we'll, we'll go out for dinner or you know, on the way home, and then we'll go into Madison Square Garden and watch LeBron play the Knicks. Right? We did that three or four times. And I was at a work function recently, and Magic Johnson was the guest speaker, so we had a chat to Magic. Right? So. There's a lot of that stuff that it's it's cool, right? It's fun and it's you know it's um, it's something that you can't do at home. So I think there's there's that um, you know the, the opportunity here. Like there's just so much opportunity because of the scale of the place. Um, um, yeah, so they're the things. I think the other one that's interesting that you do notice here that people talk about is the tall poppy syndrome. It doesn't exist here. I always heard that in Australia and thought it was cliched, but. It's interesting here, they, they, it just doesn't come up. You know, if, if you're doing well and you're having a crack, people fully support it. You know, there's a great example last week. This, this is mind-blowing for everyone, but there's a, there's a pro footballer, he's young, called Patrick Mahomes. He's like second or third year. He just signed yeah. in Australian dollars 
a $718 million 10-year deal, right? Just mind-blowing. And um, but, but people love it. There's no tall poppy. There's no people having a crack at him. And um, do, you think, do you think, though, Paul, that while there may not be a tall poppy syndrome, that the lack of modesty in the US can be a negative thing at times? Yeah, you've, it's a very different way to think about it. So you watch a lot of the athletes, right, and they're so overt. But to the Australian mind, it's over the top. But when you actually live in the community, it's, it's normal, Right, so so you, you look at some of the basketball players and the, the drama they bring and the energy and the, and the talk and everything. But you know, like I said, my son plays basketball in Harlem, and that's real. And all the way through, you know, these people—it's so passionate and such awesome people that it, it's 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 legit. No one can criticize Americans for a lack of enthusiasm, which is one of the many reasons that I love them. I mean, I was yeah. there for September 11, and the way that New York rallied around. It's people and supported each other and patriotism and a love of country was a huge part of that and it's something yeah. that I will, I will never, ever forget. What are you looking yeah. forward to most about getting home? Yeah, well, family, like, the, above all, yeah, my, like you said, my family are gone home and I, I hate being away from them. Like I'm super close, obviously, with my, my wife and kids and they went back because school started in Australia today. My son went back today in Geelong, so they're not in lockdown because we live out of Melbourne. So he started school today. Um, and my daughter tomorrow. So family and mates, like real mates, like the, you know, that's it's it's so valuable. Um, surfing, ones you that know, snake just, you for waves at Janjak. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I think the locals are happy about the lockdown in Melbourne because you're not getting uh, as many people cruising down the highway. But those are the big ones. Just to being part of it, the community, and uh, can't wait to get home. There is uh, there is no place like Australia in the world. So Dono, I'm just a bit conscious of time given uh, you're about to start your day in New York. It's been an absolute pleasure to reconnect again. You've done so much over your career, not only here in Australia, but in your time overseas as well. I know there's going to be stacks that our listeners take from this conversation, not just in strategy and all the theory involved, but most importantly, the good pragmatic examples and first-hand experience that you relayed as well. Thanks so much again, Dono, for joining us on Chunk of Change. Thanks, mate.